This is Runehammer. Beyond the gateway, just past the astral plane, where thousands of cosmic ley lines crisscross in folding kaleidoscopes of magical energy, there is a pocket dimension known only as Splinter. In this place, a prison has been constructed, a web of magical power to contain those that cannot be contained. Rogue wizards, uncontrollable mad sorcerers, mages who have pressed too far to the frontiers, those who dared parley with demons and became demons themselves, all sent here by the Council of Grey, the hero kings of Norberg, and even the Falcon himself. They've all been sent here to be contained. Those who arrive never leave. A prison for wizards and wizards alone, guarded at each of the cardinal directions by great elder undead dragon creatures, and only spires of bare rock, half-melted obsidian, and the strange barred cubes that hold the worst offenders hovering in an inky sky with no sun. This is Splinter, the wizard's prison. A realm never escaped. But a terrible secret lies behind, within, beyond this place. For it is not only a prison to contain those that cannot be controlled, but in fact a darker secret explains its existence that Durathrax, the Scarecrow, the ageless dragon, created this place not to contain those that threaten the world, but to contain those that threaten her supremacy. And the wool has been pulled over the eyes of mortal men. They send their most powerful wizards to this place when they cannot be controlled, and another of her rivals is eliminated. But the secret has reached the ears of the prisoners in Splinter and a resistance gains momentum there on the lightning-scoured plains of stone. And as you awaken in your cell, one of countless mages, wild sorcerers contained here for all time, a note is slipped beneath your barred cell door by an invisible hand. It's a series of numbers. Numbers, dots, and dashes, and this is somehow the codified language, the clicks and whirs and rumbles of the thing you've heard of, but never seen. The machine at the center of the cosmos, the RPG mainframe.
Greetings, programs. Welcome back to another episode of Rune Hammer. It's your buddy Hank Fernail here, and this is the RPG Mainframe Podcast. We are back in effect. Made my con saves, and I'm back in the saddle. So there's lots to do and lots to talk about today. This is, awesomely enough, episode 31 of the podcast coming up for Halloween and, of course, Samhain and the coolest month of the year. So it's good to be here, everybody, and nice to be back. Had a couple of weeks out of the saddle there for a minute, just um, between RinCon and birthday craziness, and then, of course, got sick because just having too much stinking fun. But all that is behind me. Enough. Enough weakness. It's time for strength. It's time for honor, and it's time for beer. And this is episode 31. So thanks, everybody, for all the kind words, cool messages, and crazy creativity in the last few weeks. It's been pretty uh, weird experience kind of going radio silent as far as the podcast and YouTube and just sort of, um, you know, bringing the third eye inward there for a couple of weeks. It honestly felt pretty strange. I mean, it was kind of a nice break, but you really get used to this RPG life here on the RPG mainframe. So uh, we're back and let's get back into it, man. This is the coolest hobby in the world. It waits for no one. So let's get it done. This is episode 31 of Runehammer. And today I wanted to talk about... Rincon. Now, not just the convention and what happened and whoop de doo and so on and so forth, but namely and specifically what came out of Rincon for me as a dungeon master that I learned. Now, this is obviously the, the meat and potatoes, the very lifeblood of Runehammer is talking about um, ways to become better dungeon masters, right? I mean, this is the essence of Runehammer in general is um, I love this stinking hobby, and I want to do it better. I want to do it more. I want to just push the boundaries for myself, and in so doing, hopefully, uh, you know, give you guys a couple of ideas, tips, or tricks, or anything to make your table just a little bit more better than it used to be, all right? So let's talk about RinCon 2018. Okay, for those of you who don't know, RinCon is a cool little tabletop gaming convention down in Tucson, Arizona, and they were gracious enough to uh, bring me down and give me a place to stay and uh, give me a few special events to run. And I also just ran some games um, on my own for uh, RinCon attendees, as well as a few friends who live down in Tucson. And uh, thank a special thanks has to go out to um, Desert King obviously, and everyone else, you know who you are. I don't need to call you out, but thanks, guys, for hosting me. You guys are totally awesome. So what basically happened down at RinCon is I flew down, and it began a an insane stream of gaming. Now, some cons uh, you go to, you know, it's just all about meeting people and having fun and drinking beers. This con was just gaming, just like, I'm telling, we just hit that table and the dice started rolling and those dice did not stop rolling till the end of the weekend. This is like four straight days of long session RPG play. And it started with Desert King's uh, table group, which these guys are amazing. They've been playing a few years together, so they're way into the game. And a lot of what I want to talk about today are learnings that I got from Desert King's DM style and his wizardry at the table, which I was just, it was fantastic to see his style 
and you know learn from it and feel it from the player's side. You know, it's it's really huge to see a game from the player's side with a DM that you're really excited about because you feel the effect they're having on you as a dungeon master and that's like gives you such a tangible desire to learn those new lessons. It's a great way to experience and expand as a dungeon master is just to be a player. So it started there, and then we go to the to the con uh, the next few days over the weekend, and there um, I'm playing with some other people. We played Doom Vault, which is you know obviously the adventure from ICRPG Core, and then we played some Blood and Snow, which is a bit of a setting book that I'm working on there that some of you guys may have heard of. It's got an Ice Age kind of theme to it. Um, and then we also played a few rounds of Junked, and then we came all the way back, and um, Desert King ran a sort of a bit of an improv game for us that he kind of came up with over the course of the con. Because you know how Dungeon Masters are. We're always thinking of the next adventure. There's almost no much, no such thing as true improv because we're constantly thinking about the damn hobby, right? Um, and so anyways, we played his adventure, which was called uh, Orvald's Tower. Really awesome spin on the classic Mage Tower adventure. But don't let me get ahead of myself. So that's really just what happened. I also did a couple of panels and a sort of a little bit of a talk about timers, threats, and treats. And uh, everybody there, thank you so much. They were great hosts. Great to meet people in the audience and have fun. We even did a, a crazy improv DCC session on Sunday morning that was just bonkers. Uh, we did it for charity. It was just a total absurdity in the form of collaborative storytelling. Just nutso. Makes Mad Libs look like doing your taxes. This was just crazy. So it was a big weekend of gaming. Um, very little drinking, to be honest. It was just rock-solid dice rolling, like, for almost five days. It was just amazing. Uh, probably got almost 20 hours of table time over the course of the weekend. Um, just spectacular, just RPG fun with lots of different people and just getting back to the table. And so I wanted to talk about what wound up in my journal uh, after this experience. Now, before I really get into this, I got to send a super special shout out to Victor Diaz. Now, he gave, this is a Ezra Harden, as you may know him from the forums. Um, he's been, uh, you know, an enthusiast and, and a, a huge member of the community with ICRPG since the beginning. But at this con, Victor gave a talk about bullet journaling. Now, I, I know that this is might seem a little bit of a you know, a silly over-codification of a habit that a lot of dungeon masters already have. And I think, you know, there's a little bit of like, uh, bullet journaling is just a fad and stuff like that. Well, I'm here to say it's not a fad. And actually, to sit down and for, I don't know, half an hour or so, think in specifics and in detail and pay great attention to the art and method and value of bullet journaling in its own right it does sound a little like, you know, yeah, okay. I mean, it's a journal. How hard could it be? Right. But to actually sit and focus on this topic and have Victor, uh, walking us through it and just what he's found out on his own journaling sort of journey, his journal journey, <laughs> it was fantastic. And it, it reminded me how much my journal is the core of my hobby. And, you know, every once in a while we all get into Google docs or we start using InDesign, maybe we're publishing or, Maybe we're preparing our, our DMs notes on our laptop and stuff like this. And it, and it has this greater precision and more savability and you can use graphics and all this other stuff. But, you know, it just brought me back to the core of what I do, which is my, my book, my journal. I play out of it. It's the usually the only book I have at the table, but all the other books go into the research. It's my ability to do shorthand and maps and drawings and NPC quotes and mechanics and draw little dice and arrows and all this craziness. That is the essence of what I do. It's the, the very sort of 
um, artifact that is the result of all the brain work that I do on this hobby. And so to listen to Victor do his talk about bullet journaling, it just brought me back to how much I really do enjoy that part of the hobby. So first of all, um, go take a look over at the um, the Bujo, it's called, Bullet Journaling Group on Google+. Um, Victor is the the sort of community leader there. It's a fantastic page and a lot of Dungeon Masters there. It's a it's His page is in particular Bullet Journaling for Game Masters. That's what it's called. So that's what you're going to look up. Great page, though, with a lot of brilliant people who are using sort of this mindset of writing in brief rather than writing in sort of prose or in long form to create game experiences and how writing is a mnemonic device to increase the precision of memory and to increase um, memory recall and stuff like this. And this whole storm of ideas all combined into a great talk. Victor, thank you for giving that talk. It just it ignited my brain in a way that has is still fueling me to just want to get back to my journal and use up pens <laughs> and just get ink to paper and feel that feeling and be that person. So that was one of the biggest talks for me over the weekend, even though that wasn't a gaming session. It just had a really big impact on me. So thank you, Victor, for doing that. Now, as far as sort of what I learned as a dungeon master, right? this is the real meat that you should be picking at here to get from this podcast. Okay, so first of all, playing with Desert King was illuminating in so many ways. Now, first of all, me and him have similar Dungeon Master styles and also have a similar dedication to the hobby. And, you know, this is a great feeling when you meet someone like this who is all the frick in on this hobby. You know, like their stuff is everywhere. They're clearly thinking about it throughout the day. They're clearly developing their own mechanics uh, in ways that that make the game cooler, they're they're clearly skilled at improvising story twists and turns, at playing off of player character details and subtleties and nuance and, and and all these different skills and enthusiasm coming together, and so that was already exciting. But then there was just a series of techniques, just nuts and bolts techniques that he was employing that wound up in my journal that I want to employ more in my game. So I have to send a a holler out to him. Um, for improving my game, but then I wanted to share with you guys just a few of the key ones. First of all, a lot of the terrain at Desert King's table was 2.5D. Now, this is basically Scotty's old school system. So DM Scotty on YouTube has this, this kind of origin style. I mean, he's he's one of the inventors of the craft DM lifestyle. And one of the places that he began this is this innovation to get away from fully 3D terrain and to get into a flatter type of terrain. Now, over time, between, you know, Pilly Pow and me and even Wylock and others, more 3D hasn't come in. And even with DM Scotty's own tilescapes, there's a lot more 3D elements. But if you look at some of Scotty's older videos, he has this very low-profile, sort of shallow terrain style. Now, my original impression of this is that it wasn't that visually exciting. But when I was a player... And the 2.5D stuff was being employed. I found my miniature and the miniatures of my teammates were suddenly the biggest, most noticeable thing on the table rather than being dwarfed by cool 3D terrain. And I got to say, as a player, I loved that feeling. Now, as a dungeon master, 
I think it's easy to get distracted and see the terrain as being this superstar. You know, you're going to reveal this next chunk of terrain. It's amazing. You're going to reveal this scene. You've got this cool maze. You've got this crazy statue and so on and so forth. But as a player, my mind is always inside me and my teammates. And the, the terrain, in my mind anyways, is more of a backdrop. And so to have this low-profile terrain, you know, like this stuff is less than an inch tall, maximum. And so your, your minis are kind of the tallest thing on the board. I loved it. It was so simple, and it let me imagine more of the world rather than some of the 3D terrain, which I think sort of imagines it for you. And I was really surprised by this. I, I was I was finding myself thinking, man, I got to make some of that stuff. Like my terrain is too ostentatious. It's too overbearing. I like this really low profile, minimalistic terrain, which is just giving us the basics of the corridor shapes. And I found myself as a player more fascinated by the game thanks to this system. So that was my first big revelation. That was really unexpected. You know, I love big, crazy 3D terrain. So it was it was kind of wild to just be using these little, almost like stick-like wall tokens to make little corridors that Desert King was doing. And I just loved it, and I was really surprised. And so that was my first big thing. So what do I do? The first thing I got home, I built my own little 2.5D sort of wall kit, which you'll see coming up here in maybe some videos and photos that are going to be coming out soon as I continue to run my Gauntel Grim game. Okay, next. In every game that Desert King was running, he would come up with some kind of wacky mechanic involving some kind of token economy. Okay, now token economy is just kind of my buzzword for at the beginning of the game, you get between one and five, say, little tokens. Now, these can be cool little glass tokens or metal coins or what I use. It could be anything. It could be M&Ms. It could be Parcheesi pieces, whatever. But... At the beginning of the game, you get a tiny little economy. And this economy is used to alter the story. It's used to add details to the world. It's used to re-roll dice. It's used to give to other uh, teammates so that they can re-roll dice. It's used to epicify the game on the player's side as a, as a, a chip to play with the DM to, to say, actually, it's a little bit like this. But it has other uses. It can be used as luck. It can be used as like, you know, chi power. It can be used as, you know, a wild spell cast. It can be used as a simple number bonus. Regardless of how you use token economy, I think it's a really exciting addition to the game, especially just improvising something that fits your game theme. And what you do is you, you give these tokens out either before the game or at the beginning, or another common approach is when players do epic things, you kind of reward them with one of these tokens. Now, in the games that we played, we were given the tokens at the beginning and told what we could do with them, and then you kind of judiciously spend them as the game goes by. And what winds up happening as a player is that you're staring at these tokens. <laughs> you're just staring at them as the turns are unfolding, and you're thinking, when do I want to use this? Is this my moment, and what can I do with it? You know, the most powerful token is used, at least in this case, to sort of add a tiny detail to the world that's going to play in your favor. And so as the other players' turns are playing out, you're sitting there like going, oh man, I've got this token. What could I do that would not only just, you know, play in my favor in a way, but wouldn't just be cheesy like Minmaxi. It would be cool for everyone and would make this scene cooler and wilder and maybe would open this kind of problem up. And we're battling this awesome, we're battling Morgrim actually. If you guys know some of my backstories that I did, I did an audio story about Morgrim. He wound up being a character in their game and we're battling him at this big portal. And Things were not going as expected, and you're just sitting there thinking, how can I 
morph this scene in a fascinating way by using this chip. And it's just another piece of the campfire, of the, the board to stare at or the table to look at and to think inside the game, and it makes things more exciting. So token economy. The next insight that Desert King mentioned to me when we're having one of our numerous Dungeon Master conversations was this idea of letting them be immortal. Now, in their game, they are well into the teen levels. They're super powered. They're, they're, they're working on very large scale problems in their game world. And uh, Desert King had this fascinating thing to say of like, you know what? Just let them be immortal. Let them have insane power levels because their power levels aren't going to give them the solutions to what they're really working on. Now, in their particular case, they're working on this almost like dwarven civilization level goal. Like they're basically trying to reclaim this entire sort of town or kingdom. And the entire dwarven sort of civilization is between them and their goal. And no amount of power is just going to solve this by like swinging a sword around. And so uh, Desert King's philosophy was to just let them have the nuts and bolts power levels. Don't try to stop it or control it or nerf it or overbear it with, you know, mega monsters and stuff. Let them be, you know, sort of OP to use the old tropey word. But give them goals in the game that are bigger and beyond just brute power. And this is a to me is a, is a fascinating approach and it's definitely a campaign level approach. For like a one shot, this is a hard standard to live up to. But I think for larger story arcs, this is just brilliant. Let them bathe in power because power is not going to accomplish their goals. The next one is another brilliant element of this sort of campaign arc, which is the non-evil enemy. So Desert King is introducing me to this concept in their game, and I just love it. That the primary opposition in the game is not simply evil. They are complex. And in this case, it's the dwarven civilization. is sort of between the players and their goals, but not just in a we're going to kill you way. So the very classic way to do a big... Uh, uh, obstacle or villain in a game, right, is to just have this, like, uh, it's going to kill you if you don't stop it sort of approach, right? This thing is just rampant, evil, homicidal craziness. But I think for the more nuanced and fascinating campaign that lasts longer and has more depth and more interesting uh, sort of twists and turns to it, the primary obstacle or villain is not inherently evil. They have their own goals that are not evil, and you happen to have goals that are in opposition to those, but you're not just perfectly good either. Simply put, there is more at stake here than life and death or destruction and salvation and, and, and finding more interesting confluences between these goals, um, I think, is what can give rise to more long-lasting campaigns. Now, I know that these are some pretty general, pretty nebulous concepts, but I'm just running it down with what I wrote in my journal. These are... These are the actual concepts I said to myself, like, wow, I need to work on these. So I don't have, like, big specific solutions on how to get this into my game quite yet. All I know is that I was fascinated by it, and I want to learn more about it by trying it. Now, finally, I just wanted to mention something very specific that we did in the game that I think was just amazing, and I'm not sure how it applies to my game, but I wanted to share it with you guys because it's so outside the norm and so interesting that it's just worth talking about. So we were in uh, this game with this giant portal and we're in this sort of crazy chaos field, you know, like we're in a realm of, of dark chaos. 
And one of the negative effects of this space as we approached this dark portal is that it sort of went into our minds and it would it would pluck out parts of who we were. And through a series of dice rolls and through some sort of improv and answering questions about our characters, our dungeon master posed this terrible dilemma to us, which is like, okay, what part of you is like something that you absolutely believe in you know, with total certainty. And then you would say, blah, blah, blah. In my case, I said, I always stand by my friends, no matter what it takes. All my characters in D&D always stand by their friends and they never back down. They always look out for, you know, I always look out for my friends. And because this chaos was reaching inside our minds, he's like, okay, since you failed your save, that is no longer part of your belief system. The, the chaos portal sort of removes that part of your soul or your spirit or your mind. And I'm just like, What? Uh, so my character no longer looks out for his friends. Like, oh my God, this posed one of the most challenging role-playing situations to me that I have ever confronted. And it wasn't just me going through this. My teammates are also being picked apart by this chaos force in this way. And it was fascinating. We spent an hour sitting around the table parlaying and agonizing over what the essence of these characters were and what made them who they are and how it was going to break apart. And it had nothing to do with any combat or dice rolls or anything. It was a a fascinating exploration into understanding characters. And it was intriguing and interesting. Now, how do you get something so specific into your game? I don't know. Besides just aping that idea right there, which I think is ready to be aped. It's awesome. I'm not sure, but what I do know is that as a player, once again, this was a huge moment for me. This was super exciting, and I was really happy to be at the table with my friends and to be doing this thing that we do. You know, sometimes the night can be dragging on, or you're rolling dice, you're really tired, or maybe somebody wants to go home, or you've had too many Doritos or too many pieces of pizza, and and the hobby can feel a little like, whew, okay, that's probably enough for tonight. This was not one of those moments. This was the moment where it's just like, this is what it's all about. This this thinking inside of a limited system that is in some way totally unlimited by the imagination, but limited by the agreed upon parameters of the game. Namely, I am a character with these properties and I'm going to lose some of these properties. And no, I don't want to. <laughs> and then the agonizing that results from that dilemma, it was absolutely fascinating. And so that's the last piece that I wanted to recap to you guys about sort of what I, I learned and, and, and grew from playing with Desert King and his group. And the final piece that we did on the last night of the con was called Orvald's Tower. And, you know, traditionally what you do is you go to the Mage's Tower, right? And then you work your way up from room to room. You start figuring things out. You're, you're finding your way to the end boss, right? It's a whole experience of going up this tower. Well, to flip it, Literally, in this case, Desert King brings us to the roof of the tower all in a montage. We just show up and kill the evil wizard without us even playing. He's just introducing the game. And we had already killed the evil wizard. We're like, uh, what? But then this this crazy storm, this maelstrom was unleashed and it's going to destroy the tower. And our goal for the adventure was just to run down, was just to run down the tower and get out because it was going to be destroyed. We did not have to kill anything. We didn't have to figure anything out. We barely even wanted loot. All we had to do was run for our freaking lives. And we're always just looking for the next stairway down 
and we're bypassing the enemies, we're bypassing the traps, we're running right past treasure chests, we're just trying to run to the stairs and run down and down and down. And it was so different and so fun and innovative. It's something you guys might want to try. It's a great thing to spring on players. If they think they're going to this mage tower type structure or mage tower type adventure, you just literally flip the whole thing on its head, kill the boss in a montage, and then start the adventure. And, you know, another one uh, example of this was when Absolute Tabletop started after the Frozen King had been killed down in the bottom of the dungeon. And then all you need to do is get out alive now that the Frozen King has been killed. Pretty much the exact same drill for an adventure, um, but we got to do it with Orvald's Tower, and I had a blast. It was awesome. Try it. Hell yeah. That was cool, man. That was real cool. Okay, as far as other revelations from Rincon, you know, running Doom Vault was a blast. I used the Darkest Dungeon 2D minis to do it. I, I, I drew the map out on a battle map, old school, you know, and then actually raffled that map off later in the con. And just a lot of dice rolling into the wee hours and just a lot of great stuff. And then Blood and Snow was very different. It was more of a world-building, collaborative sort of storytelling and testing the waters on that idea and seeing if that's going to be a fun idea and if players are going to enjoy Blood and Snow. Great collaborative session there with everybody. Thanks, guys, for showing up. But what did I really take away from all this stuff? Well, you know, a little bit of detail, what I could have done better in each game and, you know, uh, you know, better ways to introduce dilemmas and faster ways to get monsters done and cooler traps and so on and forth. And, you know, better ways to get atmosphere and all these kinds of things. But one key revelation has truly come home with me from Rincon, and that is the inestimable value of playing in person at the table. Now, as my journey down the, the, the RPG life has unfolded over the past few years, you know, just doing publishing and meeting more and more people around the world, it sort of became a big part of my, my gaming diet to play online. I think this was a natural extension of wanting to play the ICRPG material, wanting to meet more people, wanting to try out Roll20, try out digital assets, try out all this stuff. But I have to say, having come through this whole journey and all the way here on the, uh, on, you know, October of 2018, <laughs> I am back to believing what I believed at the very beginning of Drunkens and Dragons, which is that the analog art form of playing at the table with your friends with physical dice is the, is the essence that brought me into the hobby and that keeps me in the hobby. And, and going to Rincon reminded me of this. Now, playing online is great, and for some people, you don't have access to local players and so on and so forth. So rock on. I'm not, I don't mean this as a critique of online play in any way. But just for me, the art of playing at the table with the terrain, with, with physical dice, with my journal in front of me, with my friends there, you know, and we're, we're laughing and, and playing at, at the table that we played at last week, and we have this history together and, like, this is the essence of it. And so what I wanted to say here in episode 31 of Runehammer, the RPG mainframe right here, is not necessarily, you know, get out there and play at the table, guys. I mean, obviously, that's been my battle cry, you know, uh, for, for many years as far as IPG goes. But what I wanted to say is I wanted to get you guys ready for the next wave of creativity that I'm getting super pumped about with Runehammer. And it is all a wave of cre creativity that is caused by, built for, and directed toward my table game. So 
even though it's a little bit painful, I, I backed myself out of my online games, my, all my different online games, and I've dedicated myself now entirely to my at-home table game. And this means that my preparation in my journal, my building of terrain and miniatures for my table group, this is going to become my hobby. And the emphasis on that group and that story is going to be what you're going to see me doing. Um on Patreon, on YouTube, and so on and so forth. And this is what started Drunkens and Dragons in the first place, was just playing a table group and opening up my sort of my secret chamber to reveal what I was doing week to week to make that as fun as I possibly could and to make it exciting. And for someone who's played the game for many, many years, uh, I, I see it as very challenging to do something new and to try something interesting and to flip things on their head and, and to do the artistry that makes it even cooler and so on and so forth. And you guys know me. I mean, that's my whole jam. But in a way, it sometimes you really, you know, what's the old saying? You have to leave home to appreciate, you know, how you had it and so on and so forth. And for me, leaving home has been getting into publishing, you know, playing online going to cons and meeting a lot of people and being very expansive in my mindset as far as the RPG hobby. I mean, you know, doing it as a sort of a, a livelihood, it does change things a little bit, but this journey has only brought me back to my origin. It's brought me back to the very place I began, which is a table game, doing a campaign, preparing one session at a time, making the terrain and the miniatures that are needed as well as the mechanics and the planning and the maps for that session, then seeing how the characters just do all this crazy, unpredictable stuff, adapting to it, and getting ready to do the entire creative challenge all over again. That rhythm with that outcome and that micro audience, that is the essence of what brought me here and keeps me here and just makes me so freaking excited about doing RPG stuff all the time, like drawing cool characters and all this stuff. Now, also, there's a little more to it. It isn't just the at-table play that I've gotten so excited about. I have also returned to my sort of root or my essence in just what kind of tabletop play we're doing. We are back to the just bone-crushing fantasy gameplay. We, we're not, you know, don't have a lot of warp shell stuff going on. We don't have a lot of ghost mountain-y stuff or, you know, weird future kind of all of these different interesting horror, you know, kind of genres. We're, we're back to good old fashioned meat and potatoes fantasy that is a hybrid of many fantasy worlds that is being invented as we go. And you guys, I just can't deny it. It, it is where I live. I live inside sword and sorcery. I just live in there. I know it. I love it. I feel there's an infinite number of stories to tell. Don't get me wrong. I love TMNT. I love Rifts. I love Warp Shell. I love Deadlands and Ghost Mountain. I love Call of Cthulhu and all this other stuff. But if you really want to talk like the essence and the, the root, the core of my interest with this hobby, it is in just bone-crushing, badass, Pathfinder, D&D-style fantasy. Just like fantasy hero Tolkien style, all, you know, melded together, a little bit of Warhammer throw in there, some Simba Room tossed in for good measure. Just this expansive, awesome, nuanced, poetic, dramatic, heroic, chivalry-driven, lords and ladies, monsters and mayhem, magic, spells, dimensions, all of this stuff coming together into fantasy stories. It's just, uh, that is where I live as an imaginator, as a, as a, as a, an, a, 
imagineer, a creativitizer. <laughs> okay. So I think you guys can see where I'm going. So this is where you're going to see me headed in the coming months is that my creativity is going to be geared toward a table group. It's going to be getting back to the core fantasy, what I love doing so much. And then finally, what I want to say is you may have you know seen lately that my my sort of rhythm has been a little bit different as far as what I'm putting out. You know, everybody's dying for room designs all the time and stuff like that. And I'll tell you, the biggest obstacle to this for me has been this incredible monumental wave of commissions that I've been so lucky to do for so many different projects out there. And so on the one hand, I have to say, you know, I miss a little bit of just the the hobby level um, activity of art and writing and so forth. But it has been such a privilege and unique privilege to do all these commissions, not because of earning the revenue or, or, you know, the income, but because being part of people's projects is so cool and exciting and, and doing people's characters and their DM screens for their groups and like capturing all this imagination that's going on around me is such a privilege and is so fun. That has been just eating all my time and energy. It's just like these commissions are all encompassing. But, but there is a wonderful light at the end of this amazing tunnel, which is that I am going to make it. I've almost cleared my plate. And I think sometime in November, I'm going to be finally free and clear to just get back to my own projects. And I'm not quite ready to make some announcements on what's coming next. But as you guys have seen, 2018 has been crazy. The number of projects that have started and stalled out has been amazing. Now, stalling out a project is not a bad thing. It, it is okay. It's part of the creative process to get interested in a thing, go a little bit ways down the journey, and then realize, ah, maybe this isn't the coolest thing and start something else. A lot of things have fallen into that category. And you guys have seen me going through this creative exploration. I'm not coming at the so-called audience, which I still feel weird about that word, as if to say, here's the next brilliant thing. No, no, no. I'm exploring just like you are in your game. I'm exploring my own creativity, my own interests, and there are no guarantees. Just because I'm you know, doing it as a livelihood, as a, as a daily life, it doesn't give me some kind of authority or some kind of guaranteed formula for success. No, God, that's horrible. That, that just takes all of the artistry and the fun out of it. I am on a journey of discovery. And so I can't guarantee projects are going to reach fruition when they get started. But what you will see is the whole process. And that has always been what, to me, Runehammer is about, is uh, the, the revealing of the entire process when it goes great and when it goes not so great. And all that together, to me, is realistic look at the hobby that we were all doing together, not just waving my arms about product. That is, I don't want to be that. I want to show the journey that we're all on to make the cool stuff that fills our weekends with adventures and legends that we will never forget. So that's about it for this episode of the RPG mainframe, the machine at the center of the cosmos that's getting inside our brains. Oh my God. Stay tuned, you guys, because a lot is coming up on the Gontelgrim game. Session two is a wrap and it was amazing. So I'm going to be getting all those notes to you guys. I am no longer in the sick bed. I made my con saves, so I'm ready to get back on the attack. So keep your eye on the internet and, uh, Let's keep on doing the world's coolest hobby together, all right? And thank you, my shield wall, for your ongoing support here on Patreon. You guys are too stinking cool.
too dang cool, you humble a dwarf. And there's going to be some new um, bits and pieces coming, some new benefits and rewards for you guys, and new ways that we can connect um, as the year starts to come toward a close and as the season of shadows approaches. Winter is coming, my friends. <laughs> All right, this is Hankering for an Ale signing off for Runehammer. You guys, keep it real. Don't steal. You're always going to get that deal. All right, I'll see you guys on the internet. This old Ingrid Bernal signing off. Talk to you guys soon. I'm out.